Very cool. And then uh, we, you and I are going to continue on in the Word this week. Um, and we, we're in our new series. If you weren't here, a lot of you weren't here last week. But we're doing a new series um, in First Peter. And last week, all you missed last week was talking about who Peter was. And so if you weren't here and you're like, hmm, I think it's really important that we get who Peter is, the Apostle Peter, because he's going to write some things in this letter to the churches that are hard for us to believe sometimes. Hard for us to follow. Some of the texts that we're going to read in this letter are going to be some of the, some of the uh, are going to be some of the things that you hear all the time that are controversial beliefs of Christianity. And so last week was kind of the foundation of the series because it's important that we understand that Peter wasn't just some guy, you know, kind of shooting from the hip. I don't know if, if you're like me, but you know, if you ever heard like a guru on TV and they're talking about. Uh, you know, how to raise your kids. This is my favorite thing ever. They give you, like, how to raise your kids, and they've done studies on raising kids, and they've done lots of work with kids, and they go kids, kids, kids. They're experts in their field, and they write books, and they make money, and they become celebrities, and they're really huge. And you find out that they don't have kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're an expert? Come on, dude. Living my life for a few days, you know? Uh, that stuff doesn't work sometimes. Peter isn't one of those guys. Peter's an ordinary guy. And the things that he writes about, and we'll talk about them as we go through, but the things that Peter writes about are things that he knows and experiences and has authority to write about, right? And so we can take this, I think that's important when we read the book, because, you know, we kind of have a tendency to say, you know, well, who's, who, well, that's so out there. Uh, Peter was writing from a real, real place, I also remind you, and this is our kind of our focus for the whole series, is that there's a transformation that we experience in Jesus. There's a transformation in the, in the following. It's not the same yesterday as it is tomorrow. The, the, our relationship is evolving with our Savior. And Peter is one of those guys who is so transformed. But I also want to remind you that Peter is a guy who was a mess all the time. I mean, even while he was following Jesus, Right? Um, some of, you know, you might say that he put, he put the mess in Messiah, you know. Um, he made it really hard for Jesus sometimes when he was, he was kind of constantly making messes of things. And yet, here's something that's really cool, and we're talking about this today, is that Peter, in his following after Jesus, and in his continual mistake-making, in his uh, constant tendency to screw things up, he began to develop internally an irrepressible joy. And we're going to spend some time today talking about an irrepressible joy. Why is believers in Jesus, we have joy in our life? And uh, it may not be as you think it is, but uh, Peter gives us an example of that. Um, I want to remember one Bible story with you it, it, to kind of set the stage for this. And then we'll actually pray and get into God's word today in the first Peter where we're going to spend our time. There's a story, you know, back when the Bible was being written, the, the, the believers in Jesus, the followers of Jesus, those who would claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah, were being intentionally harassed and punished. There are still places in the world that are like that today, where if you would just say, I believe in Jesus, or I believe that he's the Messiah, or I believe he is God, you will find yourself in prison or worse, and there are stories in, in the, in the uh, book of Acts about several of the apostles going to jail. But the story I wanted to recount to you, it's kind of funny. There's a parallel story about Peter. But there's a story about Paul in prison singing hymns. 
singing hymns in prison, right? And, and the story goes on in Paul's life where he's in the prison, he's singing hymns, and there's an earthquake, and the doors open. And here's what's interesting about the story, because Peter has an experience also in prison where an angel of God unleashes his shackles and lets him free. And Peter walks out of the jail, out of the city, and down to the house of the Brothers of Thunder. That's what the word records for us. But, and, and, and those, the jailers pay a heavy price. But when Paul experienced this earthquake, he doesn't leave. Paul stays. As a matter of fact, it says that the guards were going to end their own lives because they knew they had lost another one of these Christians. And Paul says, don't harm yourselves. I'm right here. There's something in the life of a believer that in spite of circumstances, we have joy. Joy. And that's what I think we're going to hear about today, the root of our joy in Jesus Christ. So I pray that's what we'll discern today from the word. And I'm going to ask you right now, as we always do, enter into prayer with me as we open the word of God, and then we'll uh, continue in worship. Father, this morning we've come into your house to sing praises to your name, to thank you for your faithfulness all week, every day, and for years and years and years. How you've been sustaining us and saving us, and how you're always drawing us near to yourself. We pray today, Lord, that we would have uh, spirits of compliance, that we'd have hearts that would be willing to be obedient to you. That as much as it's in our power, Lord, we wouldn't resist your call in our lives, but we would embrace it. And that we would find our joy in our Savior, Jesus. We thank you so much for this time. We pray to open the word to our minds and our minds to the word that we might truly be transformed. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Savior. Amen. So we're going to actually get right into the word this morning. I'm going to read it with you. We're going to start in 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to start, I'm going to go ahead and read one, again, one through three. We read it last week, but we're going to jump into through 16. So if you don't have a Bible this morning, grab one of ours. It's on page 839. And it's important, you know, Scripture uh, encourages us to um, read the word and then discuss the word. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'm just going to start reading in the first verse of the first letter of Peter. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's his introduction of himself, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. By the way, that's you and me. The letter's written to us. And this is the way he starts. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to see these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, Peter does his best job here, you know, when you read his letter. Uh, it reminds me of those deals with Paul where you go, wow, there's so much stuff happening in here. And I would encourage you, by the way, if you have not read this book yet or Second Peter, that you would read it on your own, that you would sit down and read it. If there's something I say this morning and you go, what? En engage the scripture yourself. Pray about it and engage. And then come back and tell me where I was wrong. It's very likely that I've been wrong on some of this stuff today. But I, the hope is that we would actually be engaging in the conversation and trying to discern what God has for us from it. And where I want to start today is in verse 6, right? That's what we talked about already. The reason that Christians have joy, the reasons we have joy. And I want you to see that in verse 6 it says this, in this you, you greatly rejoice. I just want to stop right there. So in this you greatly rejoice. And I started thinking, well, in what? Do we greatly rejoice? What is it that gets us really, really excited, you know, really passionate, sustained passion? And it's right above. It's the coming salvation to be revealed in the last time that we greatly rejoice. And so the first thing we're going to talk about today is that as, as believers in Jesus, by the way, I put followers of Jesus, but, a, you know, when you're a follower of Jesus, you're on your way to becoming a believer in Jesus. And I, I think there is a difference, but, but that the applies here, that as believers in Jesus, that was not the right slide. Look at that. It jumped ahead on me. One second. There we go. We rejoice in our salvation. I mean, this is the source of our joy. This is the source of our passion. I want you to see that when he starts the letter out, he has this sentence where he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, praise his name. And he says, in his great mercy, we have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the dead. So there's a few things that I want to point out. That it, Peter confirms here that we are born new in Jesus, that we are born new in him. He also says that we have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the way, I always want to say this when we talk about Jesus Christ. This is the title of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one, and Peter's going to talk about that later in this, in this scripture today, but he's the one that the prophets talked about all that time. And so when Peter says we have a new hope, a new birth, 
and a living hope, he means that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you and I have eternal hope. You ever heard this, the phrase, um, hope springs eternal? That's not true for everybody. That's not true for everybody. For, for some folks, hope springs a little while. But for believers in Jesus Christ, hope springs eternal. It's always welling up inside of us, the hope that we have, the new life that we've been given in Jesus Christ through his resurrection. And then look at verse 4, what he says, and we then enter into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, right? He goes on to say that this, that this is actually the inheritance is kept in heaven for us, a place that we can't see, that there, there is a place that we're going to live into, a promise that God has made over us. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation. So, I mean, there's so much happening here, but he's talking about how even now, look what it says, through faith you're shielded by God, uh, God's power until the coming salvation. So, I'm going to try to break this down a little bit. But we have this new living hope in Jesus because of his resurrection, right? And, and, and you could feel like you have to somehow sustain it, somehow maintain it. You know, be afraid if you can't keep your faith. Oh, I might lose my faith. Oh, we all lose our faith. Listen, the faith that we have in Jesus is compelled by the Spirit of God in us. That's what Peter opened the book with. And this is a promise of an inheritance that's in heaven that cannot be stolen. The word says that the faith is protected by God's power, that it's laid up. It reminds me of in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth where rust and moth can destroy, but store up treasures in heaven where nothing can destroy it. Nothing. Peter says the same thing here. We have this living hope in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we have this inheritance that is promised. It's kept in heaven by the power of God. And we will live into it as sure as we're standing here today. And he goes on to say that it's protected by God's power until the salvation that's going to be ready to, re to, be, ready to be revealed in the last time, right? And so it is in this that we have hope, this salvation. And I, I don't know. I mean, I hear a lot of stuff out there about how, like, kind of fear-mongering, you know, as if our, our, our salvation in Jesus can be taken from us, as if there's a power that's greater than God himself to rule over us. And Peter's going to get into some stuff later. He's going to say, apply yourselves to these teachings. He's going to say, we have a hand in being obedient to Christ, but don't believe that you can be snatched, snatched from the hand of God. I don't believe that's true. I believe that on the cross, Jesus said, none that come to me will be taken from me. Not one. And that's a great promise for you and for me. Now, see, one of the problems we have when we talk about joy, right, is, uh, is that we think about joy as happiness, now, there's a word in the Bible for happiness, and we translate it blessed a lot of times. It means happy. It's kind of interchangeable there. But it's this kind of temporal feeling, you know? Um, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed are those, and has all these things that if you do, you will experience that happiness 
in God. And yet joy is not happiness. Joy is um, a continuation. Well, I'm going to read what I wrote because that's probably better than me making it up here. A confidence despite the circumstance. Joy is confidence despite our circumstance. That's why Paul can be in prison and filled with joy, right? And even though Peter responds differently, that's why he can follow that angel out of prison because he's confident what God is doing. But we have this idea that, you know, as Christians, we have to be happy. I mean, have you ever felt that way? You know, people around you know you're a believer in Jesus, and they say, how you doing? And you go, great. And you're lying. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that doesn't glorify God. You know, if, if you're having a bad day, you go, man, I'm having a bad day. Now, don't be like a negative Nancy Queen. I'm like, oh, the sky is falling. You know what I mean? Like doom and gloom. I mean, you might need to do some praying about that if you're always negative. But, you know, once in a while, everybody's having a hard day. But that does not undermine or diminish our joy in Jesus Christ. Peter says it's going to come. It's going to happen. We have this idea and, and I think it's a total uh, deception that you fake it till you make it, you know? Keep showing up at church and smiling on Sunday and saying it's great because eventually it'll be great. No, no. Y you can go, it's not so great right now, but I know God is in it. I know. And that's what I feel like Peter and Paul and the other apostles of Jesus did. They did not run away from, from hard times. They lived right through them with Jesus as their guide. As a matter of fact, you'll know that Jesus himself didn't run away from hard times. He lived right through it. So you and I might have eternal life. And that's the truth. And so this joy that, that is given us by the Spirit of God, compelled by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, is irrepressible. That means that people can try to, smack, to, to squash your joy and they'll go, dude, things can't get any worse for you. How can you still be joyful? And you go, because I know Jesus and I know the sufferings of Jesus the apostles write about. We sang that song earlier I thought was so perfect for First Peter. Every high and every low, you never let go. And I'm like, man, that's right on the money. God is always with his people, always. And then if you look back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6, I want to read on to the rest because then I'm going to ask the question, well, why do we have joy? And it says this, in this you greatly rejoice. That's your salvation. We greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, Peter says, Right? And, and, and he goes on to explain why we would have these trials. And, and this is going to be one of those things I think is a line of demarcation in, the walk, in, your, in your Christian life, right? The problem that fake it till you make it, smile all the time and say it's great and, and lie through your teeth about it is that there will come times in your life whenever trials will come. Look at verse 7. He, Peter says this, these have come, that's trials, have come into your life so that your faith and I'm going to skip the middle part for a minute and go to may, so, so that your faith may be proved genuine. Do you hear what I'm saying? And therefore, result in praise, 
glory and honor for Jesus Christ. There's a truth that if you have this kind of, you know, um, some of you will appreciate this. Dr. Hartley would always say, happy fun ball theology, you know, like life is great all the time. Woohoo, we're having fun no matter what. Look at me, I'm a Christian, I'm smiling, is that it doesn't really glorify God. But when we go through these trials and our faith is refined, that glorifies God. A genuine faith. I have the, um, the privilege and yet difficult uh, opportunity sometimes to see people who were like, Jesus, 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 when things are good. And then when they're bad, it's like, Jesus ain't, I don't know, Jesus, where's Jesus? Do you know what I mean? And that discourages me. Because I'm like, was it only for the good times? Is it only when things are right? It's not true. Joy is for all the time, for the good times and the bad. And as a matter of fact, what he says is that this this faith that's being refined through trials that we experience for a little while, he says, look, it says it's greater worth than gold because gold even perishes when refined by fire. That means that you're going to go through some proving of your faith. You're going to go through some hard times as a believer in Jesus. And all the junk is going to burn away. All the false doctrine is going to burn away. All the, you know, kind of easy pat answers you gave are going to burn away. And you're going to be left with a real living relationship with our Savior. That sounds pretty cool. But some of us would go, no, we want, we want easy, easy believianity or whatever we want. No, Jesus wants to save you. And that's where our joy comes from. We said last week that God is not content to leave you where you are. And I promised you that if you sincerely are pursuing Christ, if you are sincerely seeking Jesus in your life, he will burn away all that garbage, whether you like it or not. He will start to burn it away. And so when we experience these things, we can take comfort here from Peter And by the way, you'll remember that Peter knows what this is like. Do you think that when Peter denied Jesus three times, that was a mistake? Or do you think there was something in Peter's, not me, Lord, I'll never deny you, that needed to die? That somehow Jesus needed to say, you don't even know who I am. Those thoughts later burned away. And he's able to say, by the grace of God, I love you, I love you, I love you. Peter knew what it was like to have those, you know, uh, those falsehoods in his faith burned away by the trials, burned away by the testing, and enter into a genuine relationship with God that cannot be removed, that cannot be revoked. And in that place, in this real deal faith with Jesus, where we stop faking it till we make it, God is glorified. And you go, what? I'll tell you a story from the First Testament. I've shared this with a few of you. I'm blown away by this. There's a story about this guy named Jacob. And, and Jacob becomes Israel. Israel, as in the Jewish nation, Israel is, is who Jacob becomes. But God gives him that name. And you'll recall the story about Jacob wrestling on the beach with an angel of God. And he's wrestling all night, the word says. He wrestles and wrestles with God. But the question that the angel keeps asking is, what is your name? And Jacob finally says, I'm Jacob. And then he says, you're Israel. And you know what's so wild about that? Is if you look at Jacob's life, he was kind of a scoundrel. 
And, and someone recently, I think I shared it with you all, but someone recently said that that was the first time in Jacob's life he had admitted who he really was. After arguing with God all night, after wrestling on the beach, after trying to have his way and his inheritance, and he was going to get what he wanted. And if you look at Jacob's life, he did that a lot. He finally tells God, I'm just Jacob. And when all the junk burns away, he receives a blessing of an inheritance that becomes a nation of people. The same thing is happening in the lives of you and me when we face trials of every kind for a little while. So the second thing is this, that you and I, as, as believers in Jesus, believe in a reality we do not see, okay? And I wrote that, and I, I hope you read that and go, what? Believe in a reality you do not see. This is a big hang-up for folks who are reluctant to believe in Jesus because they go, prove it. Dude, just prove it. Prove something to me. Prove it. I can't prove it. I can't see it. I know it. I can't prove it. I remember being on the other side of the conversation. I would say, prove, your, prove it. Prove God's real. Prove it. Do something. And they go, and they wouldn't want to say that. I can't prove it. You know, so they'd make stuff up, which wasn't true. The truth is that we believe in a reality we do not see. Listen to what he goes on to say. After he says that we're being refined through our testing, he says this in, in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Again, that's where our joy comes from. And so even though we believe in a reality we cannot see, we experience God in a real way. We experience God in our lives. I'll show you something from Hebrews. The book of Hebrews actually defines faith for us, and that's what this is. Hebrews says this, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's the definition of faith from Hebrews. And so this is constantly said in the word, and yet I feel like as believers we kind of dance around that. Well, how can you believe in something that you don't see, right? How can you do that? I started to think about these things, and I think, well, there's a lot of stuff that we believe in that we don't see, you know? Most of the people who would ask this question are kind of scientifically minded. They go, give me data. I want facts. I want reproducible results. By the way, that's what discipleship is, reproducible results. But nobody wants to hear about discipleship because apparently you can't prove discipleship. 2,000 years later, still not proven, right? But I'll tell you one thing. How about air? Do you believe this room is filled with air? Yeah, and some of you don't believe it. You're going to die soon. Yeah? You believe you breathe air, don't you? We believe you know, how do you know it? Do you see it? No, you don't see it, right? Well, you go, well, air is a bad example, you know. I'll get really nerdy for you. I remember one time I was in science class, and I was blown away by this fact that, that molecules are never perfectly solid. They're always moving. And so they told us in science class that everything's always moving and that this chair isn't solid. Have you ever heard that? That this chair here, let me do this while I'm making a mess. It's not solid? I believe that. I've not seen it. 
Some guy who's smarter than me looked it up and said, those molecules don't actually touch perfectly. Things that we believe in that we don't see. I bet you believe in gravity. Don't you? Can you see gravity? You can only see the results of gravity, right? Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Right, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'll, I'll give a little shot. That was, that was him doing the maniac jump. I'm not sure I got a concussion, but that was you doing the jump at the beginning. So there may be a clue in that. OK. Um, but we believe in things that we don't see all the time. I'll give you two more examples. And I don't want to belabor the point. But one is scientists, the greatest scientists in the world. I love to hear him talk about black holes. Because they go, well, where are they? We have no idea. But they're out there. Or to get really crazy, dark matter. I don't know what it is, but it must exist. Math requires it, you know? We do all these kind of things. And I'm not, I, I'm just saying that there are things that we believe without seeing. The last one I'll give you is this, love. You and I believe love exists. We believe it. Why? You can't see it. You experience it. And that's the same thing with God. We can experience him even though we believe in a reality we do not see. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that truth. As a matter of fact, believing in Jesus means you will order your lives around this reality. You will change your behavior based on the truth that you've seen revealed in him. And you don't have to know how it works necessarily to do it. Sometimes we want to know, well, well why does that work? What, is, what, you know, what, what makes it all happen? You know? Uh, we want to un undo all the mysteries of God as if we can figure God out and answer all the questions. There's an author, uh, Rob Bell, who wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. And um, I think that's where I read it. But he talks about uh, jumping on a trampoline. And he says, you know, they figured out the right weight ratios and the right tension on the trampoline and how many springs go around it. And if you have one of those in your backyard like me, you know what I'm talking about. But the truth is, you don't have to know nothing about the engineering to jump on that trampoline, you know? You can just jump on the trampoline. And it, you feel, you know it. It's working. How's it work? I don't know. Somebody figured it out. Same is true with our relationship with God. We can experience God without having to answer all the questions about how God works. All right, let's press on in the word this morning. Here's the next thing we're going to talk about. As believers in Jesus, we know that God's promises are fulfilled. And I'm going to read here in 10, because this is really interesting. What Peter does here, he's writing to the church who's now scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he writes this. He says, concerning this salvation, the one you're joyful about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was coming to you, searched intently with the greatest care. I want you to see something. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And so what Peter is saying is, there's been a lot of really religious, smart folks who've been praying earnestly that God would reveal to them the truth of the coming of the Messiah. And this was a very present thing that was happening in their culture. Everyone wanted to be the one to understand it. When Messiah will come. When Messiah will come. And I want you to see that it was the spirit of Christ, the anointing in them, that was pointing them towards the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow his suffering. In verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, right, but you, 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you. This is one of those sentences that gets hard. But listen to what it says. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. So there's a truth that in our relationship with Jesus, we have this relationship that's even more profound than angels who are with him. That's pretty wild. And that all of these things are compelled by the Spirit of God. You'll notice the prophets were compelled to write by the Spirit of Christ, and that the preaching of the gospel is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. I, I believe that's true. I don't believe, and I say this all the time, I don't believe that in my role here as a pastor of Family Bible Church, I'm special. I believe that God can use whoever God wants to preach his word. And that's why whenever we talk about, well, I, I don't know what the word means. Listen, God has given you a spirit of discernment. And if you would, you know, receive that, if you would read the word with a spirit of discernment, he will reveal to you what you need to know. Otherwise, you say, God isn't able. God can't save me. I don't believe that's true. And so here you have the Spirit of God compelling prophets to write about the coming of the Christ and then the Holy Spirit of God being sent from heaven for the preaching of the word of God. You'll remember that we talked about Peter's sermon where 3,000 came to faith at the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is key. And so we'll leave that, that for now, but I think that, that um, we have to believe that the promises of God are fulfilled by the power of God in our lives. And, and, and that means probably different than what we think it means sometimes, you know? Because we want God to fulfill the promises the way we want them fulfilled. But these are God's promises. And I'm sure there were many who were back in that day, and you saw it in the Gospels, actually, where they wanted a certain kind of Messiah, not the one they got. You and I are the same way all too often. But all this is the uh, Spirit of God. By the way, I hope you know some of the promises that God's made over you, you know? We talked a, long, a while back about, do you know any promises God has made? And it was really cool because we shared some of them. But, you know, I, I didn't hear a lot that were from the word of God. And I wonder, like, do we just make stuff up? Like, you know, God told me I was always going to have a job that paid awesome. I don't know what it is. You know, God promised me. I mean, and that's, that's, that's cool and important. And, you know, I can pray with you about that. But, you know, there's, there's promises that God says are for all people, for all time. And they're spoken over you and I. And I don't know if we know those. Like today we talked about, do you know that he says that if you give one to me, I can't, I won't lose them? Jesus said that about you? All these things are important because they're going to determine how we engage with the world around us, how we live out our faith in Jesus, with confidence or with cowardice, based on our confidence in the promises of God. We have to know that his promises are fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. The last thing is this today, and this is going to be one of those kind of big ideas, and you've heard this before, but you and I, who are believers in Jesus, are called to be holy in Christ, called to be holy in Christ. I want to, I'll, I'll read here what he says about it. We heard it earlier. Chapter uh, 1, verse 13 says this, therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, let your hope uh, fully 
set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, right? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you have had, you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, that's Jesus, so be holy in all you do, because it is written, be holy because I am holy. And this is one of those passages that, you know, for a lot of people, they go, man, that's, how do you do that? That bar is pretty high, you know? Holy is like perfect. Holy is sanctified. Holy is set aside for the work of God in the world. Holy is one of those folks that like, they're like Teflon Don, you know, nothing sticks, just slides off. You're holy, untouchable, perfect. And here Peter challenges us. He says, you are called to be holy in Christ. This idea will set up the rest of his letter to the churches. Because you see, the problem is that churches are filled with people who aren't holy who aren't being holy, who aren't living in a way that's compelled by the Spirit of God. But I want to remind you again that this guy who wrote this letter was Peter, <laughs> you know, Peter, right? And he's saying, be holy. I want you to notice a couple things in verse 13 with me. He says, prepare your minds for action. Isn't that interesting? but be self-controlled. That means don't go going crazy. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you when Christ is revealed. And so there's this, there's this kind of tension that we have as believers that we're called out of the world, but left in the world. And I think we have to live in that tension as well. But here, here's the catch, right? Here's the deal. You go, I can't be holy. I'm a mess. I got, I got problems like nobody's business. I get that. Me too. You know? Here's the truth. Jesus says, um, Jesus says, just as I and you, Father, are one, let them be in me and I be in you. And see, the, we talk about the cross of Jesus all the time, but this is perfection. You remember at the opening of the letter, Peter says, uh, and by the sprinkling of his blood. This is Sanctification. And so you and I, if we know Jesus is our Savior, if we've said those two words, if we respond to those two words, follow me, are on our road to being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. But the perfection comes in him. And so even as the word says, be holy as I am holy, our holiness is found in Jesus alone. That's why we don't have self-righteousness. Oh, you know, God rid us of self-righteousness. So today... Um, I'm going to invite you to respond to that truth. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I mean, you can just say, yeah, you know, I'll follow Jesus. He'll take that seriously. He will take that seriously. I love the stories of transformation where the person prayed a prayer right in the middle of their sin and then just kept on sinning. But there was some change inside of them that the sin began to fall away and it began to be burned away in the refining fire of the gospel of Jesus because when you take on his name, he is serious even when you're not. And so today, if you don't know him as Savior, if you need a Savior, if you're lost in the world, I'd invite you to pray to receive him. And we're going to sing another song of praise. And then this week is going to set up the following teachings to the churches about how we are to be holy because Jesus was holy. 
And so I hope that, you know, you've kind of entered into this work with us um, together. So pray with me if you would today, and we'll continue in worship. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And you know, Father, today we thank you that it comes from a guy like Peter, you know, who, who just seemed to always get it wrong. And yet by the Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, you compelled him toward the work of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. We pray today, Father God, that in, in our obedience, you might be glorified and that our disobedience might be burned away by trials. We pray, Father, that in every way we could be found holy and not by our works or our righteousness, our own, but by the blood of Jesus. That today you would say, well, these are mine because Jesus died for them. That today you would say to the evil, to the enemies, to the um, principalities and powers that would want to come into our life and, and thwart the work that you're doing, that you, Father God, would claim sovereignty, not for our sake, but for the name of Jesus. And today, Father, I pray that we would have the courage to just be honest about where we are and to, to stop faking it until we make it and be real. May we be real disciples of Jesus. May we really follow him. And may we then know this inheritance we have in the kingdom of God is eternal and cannot be lost. Give you praise and glory today. I pray for every heart and every mind here this morning that you would work in them as you will and even mine. Do your will today, Father God. Give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.